However, we see something wonderful in verse 10. Once not only implies a past status or event, it also implies a change. Peter drives this point home with the phrase, But now, this ought to be music to our ears. Our status has changed, and Peter describes that change for us. Once we were not a people, but now you are God's people. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and thanks for joining me in the Fox Den. In this episode, I'd like to focus on 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. But let me begin by giving you some background information on this letter. Around the time that Peter wrote this letter, persecution of Christians was on the rise. For example, in Rome, Emperor Nero blamed the Christians for the fires in Rome. They weren't the cause, but they were the scapegoat and an easy target because they were not well-liked. The culture considered Christians strange because they refused to embrace the theology of the day. They were considered atheists because they weren't polytheists. They refused to worship all the gods, but limited their worship to one god. If you think about it, it sounds a lot like today, where we're jeered for believing that Christ is the only way, and that all religions don't lead to God. The Christians in Peter's day were accused of things like cannibalism because they ate the body and drank the blood of Christ. So Christians weren't well-liked in much of the Roman world. And because of this, in certain areas, Christians faced pressure and persecution. So Peter encourages his readers and prepares them to endure suffering. Peter would even say that it's part of our role as Christians to suffer with Christ. As a matter of fact, Edmund Clowney suggests that every Christian will suffer for Christ's sake. Now, as far as the purpose of the letter goes, chapter 4, verse 19, surmises Peter's purpose. And there he encourages Christians to entrust their souls to God, who is our faithful creator. But Peter clearly tells us what his purpose is in chapter 5, verse 12. There he encourages his readers to stand firm in the truth of God's grace which he has communicated to them. Now, Peter exhorts his readers by reminding them who they are, and he sprinkles throughout his letter how they are to conduct themselves while here on earth. In his introduction, Peter addresses his readers in verse 1 as elect exiles, and their election was the work of our triune God. Then in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he informs them that God caused them to be born again, and that there is an everlasting inheritance waiting for them, which God himself is securing. Now, I discussed this section of scripture in my last episode, so if you haven't done so already, take some time to listen to that episode. And then later, in chapter 1, he reminds them that they were ransomed with the blood of Christ. Do you see how Peter is preparing them? We would do well to follow suit in our churches today. Instead of encouraging people to do more for Christ, spend more time telling them who they are because of what God has done. That's what Peter's doing. He's telling them of their status, elect exiles, purchased with the blood of Christ. Peter reminds them that God has taken a special interest in them, even though they may suffer greatly because of their union with Christ. And Peter has informed his readers that they are mere recipients of God's great blessing. God took the initiative and did all the work. Then in chapter 2, he tells his readers that God is building them up like living stones into a spiritual house. 
and Christ is the cornerstone on which he is building. In verse 9, he tells them that God called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Elaborating on verse 9, Peter says in verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2, we see our prior status and our current status, and the difference between the two is remarkable. Our prior status is indicated by a simple word, once. Once is a word which points to a time in the past. For example, once I was in grade school, and once I was enlisted. So right away, Peter draws us back in time by the simple use of the word once. But what is he pointing to by using that word? Peter says there was a time when we were not a people, a time when we had not received mercy. But what does he mean by that? To answer this question, I think it will be helpful to go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that God created Adam. Then he placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God gave a simple command. You can eat from any tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But Adam disobeyed God. And in Genesis 3, 6, we see that he ate the forbidden fruit. Then we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, that God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Now, before we continue, let me address an issue most people have with God banishing Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. They say something like, why is God so nitpicky that he would kick them out of the garden for such a minor infraction? It's just a piece of fruit. If you hold that position, you fail to understand the depth of sin. You see, it's not that minor. God is not that nitpicky. Adam violated the law of a holy God, and God was just to act as he did. In other words, Adam refused to obey God. But even worse, by his actions, he called God a liar. What an insult. You see, had Adam truly believed God, he would not have eaten the forbidden fruit. His disobedience is proof of his lack of faith. Furthermore, he believed Satan over God, another insult to God's character. Because Adam violated God's simple command, he was now excluded from the land of God. He was banished from the Garden of Eden. All he had to do was obey God and not eat one fruit. But Adam, for some reason, didn't think he needed to listen to God and obey him. His disbelief led to disobedience. He took his fate into his own hands and he ate the forbidden fruit. Unfortunately for us, Adam was our representative. So when Adam sinned, we fell with him. You see, we sinned in Adam. So in essence, we sinned with Adam and therefore we fell with him. So all mankind has fallen because of Adam's sin. Now in Adam, we are all guilty of violating God's holy law. And as Paul tells us in Romans 5.12, sin entered through one man and death came through sin. Therefore, death spread to all men because all sin. Adam represented us in the Garden of Eden, and we all sinned in him and fell with him in his act of disobedience. Now, we can't simply lament the fact that we're guilty in Adam. It's true that we sinned in him and fell with him in the Garden of Eden, but we all sin by following our own sinful desires. In other words, we're guilty by our own thoughts, words, and deeds. 
It's our own sinful desires that cause us to hate others, to be dissatisfied with what God has provided, to distrust Him, to be selfish, to be prideful. But from Adam's sin, we are guilty of sinning against our holy God and had been excluded from the family of God. Because mankind is guilty in Adam, they are objects of his wrath and separated from his mercy. And at one time, that was us. Once you were not a people. Once you had not received mercy. This is bad news. However, we see something wonderful in verse 10. Once not only implies a past status or event, it also implies a change. Once I was in grade school, but I'm no longer in grade school. Once I was enlisted, but I'm no longer enlisted. Peter drives this point home with the phrase, but now. This ought to be music to our ears. Our status has changed, and Peter describes that change for us. Once we were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Where Adam was banished from the Garden of Eden, we are brought back into the family of God. We are being built up like living stones into a spiritual house. We were not a people, but now we're God's people. At one point, we were objects of God's wrath, but now we have received mercy. Now, Paul concurs with Peter. In Ephesians 2, he says, We were dead, but God made us alive with Christ, raised us with Christ, and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Once we were dead, but now we're alive. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. This is the point Peter makes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Once we were in darkness, but God called us into his marvelous light. In all these passages, we see a transition from death to life, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, and from darkness to light. Peter says once we were not a people, once we had not received mercy, but now we're God's people. Now we've received mercy. What a beautiful proclamation this is. So how did this happen? Is it possible that God saw something good in me and showed kindness to me because I'm a really great guy? Is it possible that God needed me on his team to do his work? Is it possible that God just couldn't live without me? The answer to all three of these questions is no. So then how did this happen? Peter's given us a glimpse throughout his letter up to this point. As Peter says in verse 2, we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Peter goes on to say in verse 3 that God caused us to be born again. God extended his mercy to us based on his grace alone. Though we deserve his wrath, he extended us his mercy. It simply pleased him to do so. But there was an obstacle God had to remove. In order for us to be part of God's holy family, we needed to become righteous. However, we are by association with Adam and by our own conduct guilty of violating the law of God. Therefore, we are unrighteous. How does the unrighteous become righteous? He doesn't. He's already unrighteous. Therefore, he must be credited with someone else's righteousness. That's what God did. 
He removed our sins by putting them on Christ, who was crucified on our behalf. And then he imputed or credited to us or put to our account Christ's righteousness, which we received by faith alone. This is known as justification, and I discussed this in detail in episode 4. You see, what we see here is the great transaction. Our sins are put on Christ, and his blood is shed on our behalf, and then the righteousness of Christ is put to our account. You see, Jesus really gets the raw end of the deal, but we get a glorious benefit because of the grace of God. Peter discusses the crucifixion of Christ in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1. There he says that we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. God in his grace put our sins on Christ and God punished them in him. Just as Adam represented us in the garden, Christ represented us in his perfect life and in his death on the cross. Though he never sinned, our sins were put on him and he suffered the death we deserve because of our guilt against a holy God. Because Christ was crucified in our place, our sins are forgiven because he's the perfect sacrifice. Now that our sins have been sufficiently judged in Christ, God has pardoned our sins and adopted us as his people. But not only that, the righteousness of Christ is put to our account. We are declared righteous because we are united to Christ by faith and his sinless life is ours. So let's ask the question again. How did this happen? God did it. We are mere recipients. Because of God's grace alone and the work of Christ alone, we are now God's people. We have received mercy. If you trust Christ for your salvation, you are God's people. You have received mercy. What a glorious transaction God has made for you. However, if you haven't trusted Christ for your salvation, if you haven't recognized your sins and offenses against a holy God and gripped the work of Christ for your salvation, trusting that his work alone is sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins, then you're not a people. You haven't received mercy. Therefore, I urge you to confess your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, depending on his work alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will be one of God's people you will receive mercy. God promises this, and he cannot lie. Well, perhaps you're struggling with past sin, wondering if God can forgive you. Yes, he can. You may say, "Uh, Terry, you don't understand. My sin is so great, God could never forgive me. No, you don't understand. God's grace and mercy are even greater than your sin. Your sins can be forgiven. No sin is too great for God's grace. Well, you might be saying, right, but my sins are really big. Humble your heart. You're not greater than God. Trust me, I know how bad your sins are. God can forgive you. Now, perhaps you're encountering challenging circumstances. It seems like the world is caving in on you. Maybe you have compounding trials, one crisis after another. Don't let your circumstances lead you to believe that God has expelled you from his kingdom, that he has withdrawn his mercy from you. He hasn't. God knows what he's doing, and expelling you from his family isn't it. When facing these trials and tribulations, you need to remember who you are. That's Peter's point. He knew that his readers needed to know who they were if they were going to stand firm in persecution and suffering. You too need to know who you are in Christ in order to stand firm 
in our world which tries to force us to kowtow to an ungodly agenda. But you don't belong to this sinful world anymore. You have been purchased with the precious blood of Christ. His work has been applied to you. Therefore, you now belong to God. You are his people. And from him, you have received mercy. Mercy. 